Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of the Combinate Podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sadeh. On this episode, I was joined by Margaret Jenkins, who is the founder and principal at Global Pharma Solutions based out of Australia. Margaret and I talk about clinical data interpretation. We talk about managing different indications in clinical studies. We spend a lot of times talking about the different ECTD uh, modules that she typically works in mostly focusing on the non-clinical module four and module five. We talk about pre-IND, IND dossiers. Margaret offers a lot of advice on development and growth. I really enjoyed my conversation with her. If you like this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on and feel free to send me any feedback at the uh, form on the website at letscombinate.com. And with that, here is the episode with Margaret. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sadeh. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery, so this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate Podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. Well, I, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry now for over 30 years. I started out my career in uh, drug discovery at Glaxo Welcome, one of the major multinationals that I'm sure you're aware of in the UK. And I learned a lot of the basics around how drugs are discovered, small molecules at that point, how they're tested and how molecules are chosen to go further on into non-clinical and then ultimately clinical studies. So that amazingly interesting to me. I was working very much on the technical side in the laboratory, testing bodily fluids from animals to test where the, uh, where the molecule was in, in their bodies and, and working out the pharmacokinetics to see which, which of those molecules was then a suitable candidate to take forward to, to further study. So then, as I say, that was very much bench work. I then left the UK uh, with our family. We made a decision to emigrate to Australia uh, and landed in Melbourne. This is a long time ago, and rejoined Flexo Welcome actually here in Melbourne in the development area at that point, still working in the laboratory, doing testing on fluticasone propionate, propionate nebules, COPD, etc. Again, quite intensive laboratory work for a few years, and then I had my third child. The company did a, a sort of, I guess, a organizing exercise. And the development department in the Melbourne, um, on the Melbourne site was actually closed down. So I really didn't have a job to go back to, um, but I'd always had an interest in regulatory. And so the what did, what did, what did, what did that feel like? To be made redundant. Yeah, that, yeah. it was, it wasn't nice, but to be honest, there was a lot of warning. There was a lot of discussions for a number of months before it actually happened. So. There was a department, I think there was 32 of us, uh, we were, the whole department was closed down. 
So it was no, sh- it was no shock when it came because the discussions had been on- going on for months. Uh, and the company was very supportive in terms of uh, offering help to re-employ us in different areas of the business. So rather than, I think most of us, at least I did, look on it as, as an opportunity that was perhaps forced on us, yeah. But an opportunity for me became, well, what do I want to do now? You know, what have I always been interested in? And I'd always been curious about regulatory because in the development space, we'd had people from reg come, to, come into our department to talk about what's the next step when you develop a product, how do we register it? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't mind trying that. So I then went for an internal interview in regulatory and managed to secure a, a, what we call a secondment to, in, to regulatory at, at the same company. And yeah. knowing that I had no job to go back to, so it was an interesting secondment. But, um, so I had to really go all in and really try and make regulatory work. And sure enough, when I got there, sorry, are you laughing? Yeah, well, it's like backs against the wall, right? So you better love it. Better love it. Yeah, no choice. <laughs> so I had to jump in with both feet. And, and I did find actually that once I was in regulatory, I could then, you know, I, some people within the industry are not clear on what regulatory does. But what I realized when I actually got there and rolled my sleeves up and started working, I realized actually what you need to do is you need to draw on your background. So every little bit of experience that I had in terms of my drug discovery and drug development experience, working hands-on on the lab, doing testing, looking at specifications, validation reports, all that kind of chemical testing. It really put me in good stead to understand the data that I then had to review in, in regulation. So it was actually, I found quite quickly, it was a really good fit for me. And working on that side of uh, the technical side of regulatory really interested me. But then I started to want more. You know, I said, well, I've, I've worked on the bench now for a number of years. What else is there to, in regulatory? What else can I get involved with and put my, put my mind to? Uh, and what else is involved in the dossier? So the dossier obviously is a huge document that is a number of documents that's submitted to various different agencies around the world, including the FDA, TGA in Australia, EMA, et cetera. So in that spirit of all in and no other option, <laughs> I just learned the, the structure of the dossier off my heart. I would recite it to myself and try and understand where everything went, where did the chemistry go? Where did the specifications go? What's the manufacturing section? Where does that go? What does it look like? Cause I needed to know, right? I needed to understand. And then, as I say, wanted to branch out into other areas of the dossier, you know, the non-clinical and the clinical sections. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining you with flashcards. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so then w- w- where did the clinical regulatory interpretation kind of within that field come up? Okay. So that came up a number of years later, actually. I got an amazing opportunity with a with a company, this is now when I'd branched out on my own and I was consulting, I was working with an amazing company who, ha- who was doing a clinical trial and I'd never been involved with clinical work at that stage, but they needed us to write a dossier from scratch, which again, I'd never done before. And to look at the clinical data as it literally was reported. And in those days, it's different now, it's all electronic, of course, but we would get printouts, big chunky printouts about 12 inches deep. And we had to wade through physically, read what it said. And I think that was when it suddenly 
dawned on me how exciting I found this. I mean, qu just quietly, way more than chemistry. I, I looked at this data and I thought, wow, this is real data coming from patients. This is amazing. I really want to understand and see what, what is this telling me now? What am I going to need to write in the dossier around this? So that was, yeah, that was the first step into the exciting world of clinical interpretation in a regulatory sense for me. Yeah. And, and, and just to be clear, we're talking drugs here, right? Drugs, yeah. Yeah. And, and you've worked on small molecule, large molecule. Yep. That's right. Different, different administration routes or uh, oral solid dose versus IV and, and all of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. The particular so, one was, was a biological, actually, it was a, an IV administration. So intravenous administration. I see. Yeah. What, fa what phases do you work on? Is it all phases? And when you say dossier? Okay. So uh, the dossier is the, is the package of information that you submit to the regulatory agency that is really at the end of the line of your development program. So you've, you've pulled together everything. You've done all the testing in the laboratories. You've made sure the, uh, the product passes all its specifications, all the release criteria when you release batches to go into the clinic or go into patients commercially. Um, you make sure all that's consistent. Uh, the agency themselves, say the FDA or the TGA, may have even come and inspected your manufacturing plant. All that's been passed. You've got a big tick there. And you've put together all this information in what we call the dossier. And the dossier is divided up into what we call modules. So there's five different modules. Up. Yeah, so like, it's huge. Like, like, like the CTD. It is. I think, I think what, what, I, what I'm maybe trying to understand is from a submission pathway point of view, you're, I'm just trying to contextualize the clinical part. Are we talking, we're doing pre IND or IMP in the EU, or are we talking things like BLA, NDA and yeah. support, BLA. Support, it's supporting those, the commercial yeah. filer. Yeah. So when you and put so, it together, you're and, beyond IND, you've done your, all your IND studies uh, and you have all the data and then you finally assembling it in the dossier for your BLA or your NDA. Yeah. I, I say I don't have a regulatory bone in my body. So I, I, I've, I've heard dossier over, over and over again. I thought it just meant submission, generally speaking. Are you saying it, normally it's like the pre, pre-commercial authorization? Exactly. Um, submission packages dossier. Exactly. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So what, what, what module is clinical data in? Okay, clinical data is module five. So the actual data goes into module five. Non-clinical is module four and what we call CMC or all the chemistry that I've just been referring to manufacturing testing goes in module three. So three, four, and five are the big meaty parts of the dossier where all the data sits. I've only, I've only worked on module three personally. Yeah. And so non-clinical data is what? is anything that's not clinical. So it might be in vitro studies, it might be animal studies supporting the safety of the molecule. Uh, that's still a requirement, although there's discussion of trying to do away with animal studies, which would be a wonderful thing. However, that's still a requirement. Yep. And so non-clinical means non-human, Yep. but supporting the safety and efficacy. Correct, yep. Whereas, whereas module three is all of the functional performance and assay drug characteristic testing, yep, USP testing in that. Yeah, that's right. 
And clinical and CMC will usually go along in parallel. Non-clinical is, is very important because you have to do that before you go into the clinic to make sure that the, the drug is safe and that you have a signal you, and, and usually helps to elucidate the mechanism of action of the drug as well before you go into the clinic. So you're saying that the, the, the gathering of the data for the modules is not in order. It's the module four is you, you have everything to fill out module four before you go into the clinic and then you go into the clinic and then you can fill out module five, but for you to even get into the clinic or do module four, you need to gather the, some of the um, items that would feed into module three kind of thing. Yeah. In fact, module three kind of goes along in parallel almost all the way. You should have everything finished in module three, really, before phase three. Uh, however, in practical terms, it, there's still sometimes development going on and testing, et cetera. You know, fine-tuning potency assays, et cetera, before you get to phase three. What? So I, I'm, I'm a combination product person. A lot of my audience kind of works in this space. Some of us are more device-focused. Some of us are more drug-focused. One thing I've been wanting to do personally, I've, I've started to make way on it is kind of one by one, because you mentioned a very specific assay right now, I've, I've been wanting to at least conceptually build my understanding of all the different standard test methods that a DP would go through. Do you have any recommendation for learning those barring or getting a, a, a week in the lab or a couple of weeks in the lab, just two people? I was going to say, Subi, actually learning on the job is probably, there's nothing better than that. Really, that's how I learned from various different experiences, understanding, for example, in the respiratory area, doing a test called Cascade Impacta, which actually mimics when you inhale a powder, it goes down the different levels deep into the, into the lung. And we had a test called the Cascade Impacta in, in the laboratory, which mimics what the lung, how the powder goes down into the different levels of the lung. And I don't know that I could have understood that if I'd read about it. I think I really needed to touch and feel it and do the test myself. So I think that would might be my advice to you. It's, it probably makes it harder in some ways, doesn't it? But I, I learn a lot by doing. I think a lot of human beings do learn by doing physical experience rather than reading. Yeah. Sure. So I guess now, nowadays, do you find yourself mostly focused in module five work? Are you doing whole submissions? Like where's your Gen split? Generally whole submissions, but my team will work on different parts of the dossier at the same time. So we do write all five modules of the dossier, but yeah, my sweet spot is, is the clinical. And I should mention that module three, four, and five, as I've outlined, are that where the meaty, all the data sits for chemistry, non-clinical, clinical. However, there's module two, which we haven't discussed, and that is where you actually summarize and provide overviews of all that data for the benefit of the regulatory reviewer, because the regulatory reviewer can wade through all the data that you've generated over the years in three, four, and five, but they really need to have an overview from an expert. And that's where module three, module two rather comes in, where the expert provides an overview of the, the chemistry, uh, which is literally just a summary, uh, the non-clinical, which is a summary and an overview from a non-clinical expert, and also an overview and a summary of the clinical in module two. And that's generally the, the reviewer likes to go to that because it's a, it's one of their peers, it's an expert in the area, giving an overview. 
and they sign off on that and say that I, I agree with this data. There's, there's formal processes that had to be gone through as well. So I, I suspect module two is the last one to be finalized. Yes, generally, absolutely right. Yep. Yeah, because everything else has to be locked down. Yeah. So can you, can you walk me through module five? Well, module five is basically off the top of my head. I can't remember exactly all the uh, steps, but it's, it's module 5.1.1.2.3. And the area that really is important is module 5.1.3, which is where all your efficacy studies are. And basically not to put too fine a point in it, it's really just dumping the data in there. You put all your clinical study reports in there. Any studies of pharmacokinetics, which often are done on new chemical entities or new biological entities, if they're relevant, by the way, before you go into the clinic to do efficacy. So you want to test whether what happens to the drug when it's in the body, how is it metabolized, how is it absorbed, distributed, metabolized, excreted, etc. What's the half-life? When does it reach peak plasma concentration, etc. So that's usually done before you do efficacy, and that all sits in module five as well. So as, as you're talking, maybe some things are clicking for me and, and correct me if, if this is completely wrong. So, so, so module three is performance spec. What, what's the, what's the recipe? Have you made it against it? Validation, all that stuff. Module four is safety. Module five is efficacy. Essentially module five is also clinical safety as well. So module five, sorry, module four, going back to module four, as I mentioned, has to be done before you get in the clinic. You occasionally have to backtrack. <clears throat> occasionally agencies make you go back and do some more animal study, but generally, hopefully not. So you do all the animal studies to do safety, but also signals of efficacy in early animal studies and also mechanism of action. So it's, it's quite important if you can find out how the drug works. And then when you move on to clinical, you then also testing safety as well, because you need to test it safe in humans. You've, you've done a lot of animal studies to show you have a huge safety margin at the doses that you'll be dosing into humans. But when you do get into humans, you ne then need to recheck, make sure it's still safe at those doses, as well as obviously the... The, the terminology is not coming to me. It's not dose response. It's not dose setting. It's how, how do you know the max dose that's tolerable from a safety point of view? In humans? It's like, yeah, what's that called? Yeah. So that's, that's the maximum tolerated dose, but generally you'll have a, as I say, the non-clinical will inform you. So you usually go way beyond the clinical dose in your non-clinical studies. And just to, just to frame this, I'm not a non-clinical expert, but it's just very high level. So then you've got an idea of what's, what's. We're, we're, we're all, we're all experts in the making. Aren't we? we are. We're all on a journey of learning, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Every yeah. day. So in humans, then basically, uh, perhaps if I very briefly go through the phase, phase one studies in humans is generally first time into man. Uh, when you're dosing what you believe will be a safe dose. Um, you're, so you're checking, you're checking safety primarily. Also, as I mentioned, pharmacokinetics, what happens to the drug once it's in the body. Then you move into, once that's successful, you then have an idea, okay, this dose is safe. But then you move into phase two, because then you want to know, okay, this dose is safe, but can, could there be higher doses that are then showing, that are also safe, that are showing greater efficacy? So then you look at dose ranging studies. 
in phase two. That's it. Is that what you were looking for? Dose ranging. Dose That's ranging. what I was asking. Eight. That's what I was looking for. Dose ranging. So what you're looking for, Subi, is the minimal clinically effective dose. So obviously, if you find the dose, for example, you're looking at 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams, and you find they're both effective and both safe, you would, you would go for the 100 milligrams because you don't want to go for a higher dose unless you absolutely have to, as long as it's effective. And then you move on to phase three, where you scale up for larger, larger populations and you home in on the population that you really want to treat. And that's when you're looking at multi, multi-site studies, sometimes multinational studies as well. How, how does it work for submissions where the drug product has multiple indications or if there's gathering of more data in phase four real world evidence, like are you, is each indication its own dossier and are you constantly? Yeah. Generally speaking, you, you, you start out carefully, particularly with a brand new molecule or a brand new biological, you'll start with one, one indication. And, and yeah, it's, it's some, it can confuse the issue if you try and study more than one indication together, because generally each indication the drug will work in a particular way. It may work in several different ways. Some biologics, for example, cell therapies have multimodal mechanisms of action. And so for that one cell therapy, you can develop the one product or similar cell therapy products, and they will work in different ways in different disease models and different populations. So it's really important to treat them separately and study them separately so that you can get a clear picture of what's going on. The patient population is module one, is it? No, patient population is your, your humans that you're studying. So for example, I, but I'm saying, where do you, where do you set that? Like, where's the intended use indication set? So that's in module. Or what are, so that's your, oh, it's in five. Yeah. So okay. your patient population is, are the humans that you want to study. So who are they? Are they, if we take heart failure as, a, as, a, as an example, there's very varying types of heart failure, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with uh, preserved ejection fraction. And in particular, what are you studying? Are you studying mild heart failure, early heart failure, where patients have just started to, to experience some symptoms? Or are you looking at end of the line, end stage heart failure, where they have an LVAD in, implanted? That is your patient population. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can develop a molecule that is, you see a signal in animal studies, and then you think, well, I'll, I'll study all heart failure patients. And then you find, oh, that's not happening in the, in, the, in the patient population. When you get into humans, you find it's not quite as effective as you thought. And then you realize, actually, this molecule is best for end-stage heart failure or for early heart stage failure. So then you do another study and you focus just in on the, those popu- that population. So that's the population that I'm, I'm referring to, the humans in which the molecule works best, essentially. And then, and then the real-world evidence or phase four phase studies? Four. Yeah. So that's after you get regulatory approval, generally speaking. Then you can study it. Sometimes you need to do a post-approval safety surveillance study. It might be for safety. But, but there's also guidelines, and this is not really my area, but again, this is an area of learning for myself where I want to understand real-world evidence. And some cities across the world are actually putting out guidelines on real-world evidence. The US FDA has a, has a guideline where 
they're starting to actually accept where this molecule, whatever it might be, is already used in humans. And there's evidence out there that it's safe and effective. And that potentially, uh, there's discussions, as I say, it's still, it's still underway, it's still under development at the moment, where the agencies around the world may in fact accept that as evidence of efficacy and safety in a dossier. So that, that's quite a reasonably new development, although it's, it's, it's ongoing. And then what about maintenance? Like once a dossier is approved, is there maintenance activities that where the annual reports and stuff come in? Abs or? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So for the U.S., there's annual reports, of course, any changes that you make to the, to the product and the way it's made. So for example, quite often when you've manufactured something, you have regulatory approval, you then might have some efficiencies that you'd like to introduce into the process. Or you may want to scale up the process, for example, you find that you need, uh, there's great demand out there in the marketplace and you need to double the size of your batches. That is also a regulatory activity. So you need to put a submission in and it's what we call a post-approval variation to vary the conditions of approval, just to show that I'm, I'm scaling up the, the batch. However, everything is still the same. It still meets the same criteria, the same release certifications. It's still stable on, on stability, et cetera on storing over What would they look for? Like, is, is that where comparability studies are used? Generally speaking, or... yeah, yeah. So if you take the batch increase example to be quite often, you need to show existing batches and that means a batch data. So batch release data, all the testing for that batch before you made the change. And then after you made the change, showing that they're comparable. Yep. Cool. And then it, there's, and so from, sorry. I was right, just right. going to say, sometimes there's more complex examples where in biologics, when you change things, sometimes you, you have to go further than that and you have to show, yes, they're comparable from a pharmaceutical CMC perspective, uh, but they are, we need to then show perhaps in an in vitro model or an animal model indeed, that they're also still the same so that the clinical data that you've already generated is still relevant to the new product, the scaled up product or the changed product, whatever that might be. And then in terms of do, do post-approval studies feed into the CTD or the CTD is a point in time once it's approved, you're done? No, no, you're actually never done. It's very, the, the CTD. So once you submit the CTD, you have what we call a tracking sheet which shows that when it's called 0000, I believe, is your first submission. So then you have that approved and then post-approval maintenance, as you mentioned, then becomes your first submission post-approval becomes sequence 0001 and it's all tracked. So essentially it becomes a live dossier. It's an evolving document where the agency and yourselves, the company can then keep a track of, uh, this is what we submitted in sequence zero. And this is where it is now. We've done all these changes um, and you can trace through the history of the evolution of the product over time post approval. Well, what do you find to be kind of the most difficult part about module five? The most and, and it's input. I, I don't mean I don't mean to ask it in a because module, I don't mean to ask it as a like what's the hardest part of the template? That's not what I'm asking. I guess I'm asking what's the hardest activity within that feeds into that section, in other words. Yeah. So 
Just to clarify, module five, module three, four, and five, but five in particular, as you I guess we're focusing on that, is really just Oops. a bunch of reports. It's a bunch of study reports, et cetera. The difficulty I think that you're referring to and the, the interesting as well as sometimes difficult part is in module two, where we're taking that data from those reports and we're doing an overview, providing an overview. overview. So what we do is we do write those overviews. I think as you ask about the difficult part, I, I don't find it difficult. I see it as a challenge. It's something new to learn. So for example, if we're working on a new indication that, that is, quite, is really quite novel, we will bring in clinicians to support us. And obviously uh, clients that we work with will support, uh, support that area because they often have experts as well. So we will work with the clinical experts to understand exactly how the molecule works, what studies have been done. So that's uh, rather than difficult, it's just a next level of learning. It's a bit of a learning curve, I think is really how I see it. And then once you've got onto that plateau of learning and you understand the disease area, you understand how the drug works, you can then go ahead and write. And that's the, that's the, the really juicy part I, think, I see as the really interesting part to start writing those overviews, the clinical overview and clinical summaries and then work with the clinician to, and, to finalize those for the dossier in module two. Yeah. So a little bit of a, a difference in mindset pain is uh, inevitable. Suffering is optional kind of thing. Well done. Um, yeah. Oh, and, and, and so the, what does the data look like? Um, ask somebody who's never had to work on anything related to that before. Yeah. Are you just getting sheets of data and having to interpret it or are you getting it with some processing? In, in its rawest form, sometimes we do get involved very much on that and the raw data end. It, it's, uh, what, what happens is an output from a clinical study is what we call tables, figures, and listings, or TFLs. And so those TFLs are predetermined before the study starts in terms of the structure and content of them. And all that feeds into the clinical study report, which sits in module five. You mean before the data is even gathered? Yeah, so, we, so the, the company will generate what we call shells of tables, figures, and listing and say, okay, table 14.1.2 will, will, will show demographics. So it will show the, the age, the gender, the height, the weight of all the patients. And that will be recorded in table 14.1.1. And then you've got numerous, it would take me all day to explain all the other tables, figures, and listings, but they're numerous. And you're right. Sometimes back in the day, they did come through as a, a big wad of paper that we had to wade through. Nowadays, it's, it's obviously huge files of data that you look through. The statisticians will be the first port of call who will look through and analyze the data according to pre-agreed pre, pre uh, statistical models. So they will look through the data, get their hands on it and see what is it telling us. And primarily what they're interested in and what the company's interested in is did the uh, is the, are those results in the tables, figures, and listings telling me that we passed the endpoints that we set, primary endpoint in particular? Uh, and if they pass the primary endpoint, then the rest of the endpoints are then analyzed second, second to that. Okay. So what is, a, how, how are primary endpoints set? How are they set? Okay. So. I, and, and, and where? So they're generally set once way back when the study is being designed based on, so if we're talking phase three, for example, which is normally what we call your pivotal 
uh, indication seeking study. That's your final study that you're doing. And by the time you get to that point, you have already got phase one data. So you know the pharmacokinetics, if that's relevant, the safety. You've done your dose ranging studies in phase two. So you know the dose that you're looking at. You've, you've studied a small number of patients in, in phase two. So then when you get to designing your phase three, you then have a good deal of information about how this drug works, the population you want to study, and the sorts of endpoints that you want to study. And endpoints, absolutely critical to get those endpoints right, absolutely critical, and absolutely critical to get the population right, the, the group of patients that you study, the population. Who, is, who are the primary decision makers as far as that? So they'll generally be clinicians, scientists working on the project from the company. Uh, Global Pharma Solutions sometimes will input into that as well, based on our experience as a fresh pair of eyes, if you like. But generally, it will be clinicians and experts in clinical trial design who already are right across the data. And they, they pick those endpoints and they, uh, that's locked in in what we call the protocol. And the protocol is submitted to the agency in the U.S., the, the US FDA will then approve that protocol before your study can go ahead. And they will also, which is really, really helpful, actually, advise you and suggest ways that you could improve or, or even redirect, you know, if they don't agree with the endpoints or the patient population, for example. So it's really helpful. All that happens in your pre-IND meeting and your IND uh, submission as well. So that's a very helpful phase before you actually get the, your, your study underway. So I, I remember talking to a person from Australia and they were saying that for the earlier studies, at least there's a bit of a different system, but as far as the IND submission goes, are you doing it? Is it one IND for all of the studies that are related to a molecule or is it a new IND every time you enter a new phase? Well, generally speaking, it's one IND per indication. So you open up an IND for that drug, for that indication, and you may have a number of studies under that IND. So once you've opened your IND, then you then read, you discuss with the agency every time you do a new study. So it's essentially opening an IND for a development program under which several studies will sit. So there's a, there's a whole process that you go through. So you have your phase one study. And then your phase two, and you're checking in. I'm talking mainly US here at the moment, but I can talk about other agencies because the process is, is quite different. As you mentioned, your, yeah, your, the Australian person you spoke to probably would have told you how efficient and quick it is in Australia compared to other jurisdictions. So in the US, as I've mentioned, you need to open an IND, which is a whole process. It's, it's like a bit of a mini dossier, actually. Whereas in Australia, there's no such process. It's a very quick and efficient process. There's no IND. There's actually no reg submission as such. There is a notification to the TGA here in Australia just to let the TGA know that we have approval from the ethics committee. So the first step is submit to the ethics committee and they will, they will review your package based on, based on mainly safety and sometimes design of your early studies over here. And then they will approve that in a matter of weeks. And then you go to the TGA and then you notify them using a CTN or clinical trial notification to let them know you have ethics approval. These are the sites that you're going to be opening. These are the investigators, et cetera. They will then acknowledge that. And then you're, you're pretty fine to go ahead and start recruiting. So it's a very fast process. There's also big incentives over here in Australia, which 
people may or may not know about where, apart from the speed and the efficiency that I've just mentioned, the, the government, the federal government in Australia gives incentives in terms of the, the R&D tax rebates. So if you set up a presence for your company over here, you have, a, you have an affiliate or a subsidiary over here in Australia, which is very straightforward to do, you then submit all your, in your tax return at the end of the tax year here, uh, you submit all your financials to the, to the uh, government and you can potentially uh, claim up to 43.5% of all your search cost, which includes all your clinical studies as well. So there's a lot of incentives. To, 43%. That's a lot. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, quite a big incentive to do trials over here. However, being a small country, that we're limited in terms of the number of clinical trial sites that we can offer and the populations that we can offer. So generally, the larger phase three trials are done across different sites and across different countries. These may include some sites in Australia, but generally phase three trials are done across, say, the US and, and Europe and, and a few sites in Australia. Yeah. Human factors. I know that you've worked on a bunch of combination products. Yep. Think that, I think that goes in module five. Is yes. that right? Yes. Any, any testing on humans goes in module five. We haven't, I haven't been involved in human factor studies at this stage, but one or two, two in particular that we're working on right now, we're planning for that. Yeah. And that's, that's often needed. Yeah. Depending on the phase that you're at, for example, we're working on some projects where we're using an off the shelf device to combine with the, combine with the, the medicine to administer the medicine, in which case you don't always need the full testing. Whereas if you're developing a, a device from scratch, as you probably know, you need the full gamut of, of testing, including human factors. Yeah. Where can people find you, Marg? Well, we have a website, globalpharmasolutions.com. And my email is very simply margaret at globalpharmasolutions.com. My LinkedIn profile, we, we are based in Australia, but we are very much working with clients all over the world. Very good. Well, it was awesome oh. talking to you, Marg. Appreciate you walking through the, the, the clinical bit that has left a mystery in my mind. And we'll talk soon. No worries. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.